This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Concern about the high weekend COVID counts has made a few people nervous about a pending shutdown. Governor David Ige tweeted out an assurance that no announcement was being made today. Social media posts triggered a bit of a run on toilet paper this weekend, and Matson Navigation even issued a release saying it did not see any reason for any disruption of its schedules. But the weekend numbers of close to 1,700 cases is disconcerting. Health officials are trying to manage the growing number of hospitalized COVID patients while preparing to scale up facilities to deal with an overflow situation. We just don't know if we've peaked yet, so it could get worse before it gets better. This morning, we talked to Hilton Rathel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. We do know that there is variability in the numbers, and there are different reasons why the daily counts, daily infection counts, can go up and down. What happened yesterday is that there was a total count of over 1,600 cases, which is a new record. Now, part of the reason for the 1,600, well, there is there, there was actually roughly 1,000 new cases, which is not good, but there were, one of the labs had a backlog in the cases that they submitted to the Department of Health. And so they had a backlog of approximately 800 cases. Now, most of those 800 cases in the backlog got into yesterday's count, but not all of them. So for the count for yesterday of over 1,600, approximately 1,000 were new cases and approximately 600 were additional cases from the backlog. Now, There is still some cases from that lab, from the backlog, that will show up in today's cases. So today's case count will have the actual count plus some of these backlog cases. And this this happens from time to time. It's a complicated process. There's a lot of components to it. And so what's most critical is not necessarily the daily numbers, although we watch those. What's what's most critical is the seven-day average because the seven-day average smooths out these ups and downs that can happen because labs are not getting data in or you're doing backlog uh, backlogs catching up with backlogs so the seven-day average is a better indicator and unfortunately the seven-day average has been increasing over the last couple of weeks what about the positivity rate how do we look at that well the positivity rate is still a concern you know because we have the the positivity rate as of yesterday was 8.11%. Now, that's a um, that's not a good number to have, to have an 8% positivity rate. Now, it has been a little higher. Uh, a few days ago, it was 8.4%. But an 8% positivity rate is not a good number. Um, and just going back to the seven-day average, the seven-day average yesterday was 863 cases. So, And that's up significantly from... Um, we had, if, if I'm looking at the numbers here, in mid-August, uh, we were looking at seven-day averages of around 600 and 660, 670 cases. If we go back to the beginning of August, we had a seven-day average in the 500 range. So just in August, we've gone from a seven-day average of about 500-some cases at the beginning of the month or early in the month to over 800 cases at the end of the month. And and that's a fairly significant jump. And that combined with a positivity rate, which is staying high in the 8% range, would indicate to us that there are more hospitalizations on the way in another 10 to 12 days um, because of that lag between, between infections, positivity rate, and hospitalizations. 
you know, we have heard lots of talk about the modeling. You know, it's getting up there, and there is a concern about the stress on our on our infrastructure and our healthcare workers. Well, we're very concerned about the stress on our healthcare delivery system. This panic pandemic has been going on for 18 months now, and it will go on at least for a few months at some levels. We don't know exactly what those levels are going to be, and that is a long time for our healthcare delivery system to be dealing with a pandemic because not only do we have the pandemic, we have all the normal things that happen, you know, the heart attacks, the strokes, the accidents, the drownings, the, you know, all the, the broken bones, all the things that normally happen, those are continuing to happen and then you have a pandemic on top of that. And so this is definitely stressing our system. Now, what the good news is that we have a lot of people working on this and I was involved in a series of meetings over the last 72 hours, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, where we have on the phone a variety of agencies working on different initiatives. We have FEMA involved. We have Department of Defense involved. We have HIEMA involved. We have ASPA involved. We have CMS involved. We have the Department of Health involved. So there are a lot of resources looking at what we need to do to ensure that we can take care of the people of Hawaii. So there's multiple initiatives that are being worked on concurrently or simultaneously as we, you know, to help support the people of Hawaii. And that's very gratifying and we're very appreciative of all the attention and support we're receiving from the local and federal agencies. Now, you know, we have had a record number of deaths, I think, on one day. I believe it was nine I've seen stories on the mainland about uh, the use of ECMO machines. Maybe if you can explain to our listeners, you know, how often is that used and what does it do? Right. Now, ECMO, E-C-M-O, is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So basically it's a very complicated and um, sophisticated system that can either replace heart function or lung lung function or heart and lung function. So... If someone is on a ventilator um, and they're very, very sick and their lungs and or their heart are just not working well, as a last resort, we can put people on these ECMO machines. Now, this is, this is for people who are very, very sick. And we have a total of five in the state. We have two at Straub Medical Center. We have two at Queens Medical Center at Punchbowl. And we have, uh, sorry, we have a total of six. We have two at Straub, two at Queens, and two at Capilani for pediatrics. So the, the ECMO machines at Straub and Queens are for adults. So we have four total in the state for adults, and we have two total in the state for pediatrics. Now, what these ECMO machines do is that they basically, you take the blood out of, uh, you divert the blood out of the uh, body run it through these machines, and it can either replace the heart function or the lung function or both. Now, this is, again, for very, very sick people, it is a multi-person team that is required to run these machines. Um, There are doctors, there are nurses, there are technicians. So it is literally a team of individuals 24-7 that are for one patient, taking care of one patient. So it's very, very um, labor-intensive. It takes a lot of space because the machines, you know, you've got, uh, you've got all this equipment around the patient, 
and there are potential risks and side effects. Now, they are used. Um, they they are used just for very very severe cases, and again, they are essentially a last resort if the ventilator is not doing not supporting the lungs enough. You know, because this machine, the ECMO machine, acts either as a as an artificial lung or an artificial heart, it does allow the lungs and or the heart to rest because this ECMO machine is doing the work of the heart and lung outside of the body. Now, uh, I know someone whose family member was put on one of these machines and, and the outcome was good, but it's not always. And this was someone that, you know, not related to COVID, but just for, you know, other reasons had to be put on this machine of last resort. So it's not used all the time. And I don't know, how are we doing as far as are there any open ECMO machines or are they all being used? No, all of our ECMO machines are in use at this point in time. Fortunately, you know, not many patients need this. ECMO machines around been around for a, for a number of years, and we have learned during the pandemic that ECMO machines can help with COVID because COVID affects the lungs and the heart. So they this is an additional use. Normally, we would not have all our ECMO machines in use, but because we have a very high number of hospitalizations, you know, still uh, today we still have over 400 hospitalizations, which is very very high for the state. And the ECMO machines, you know, can be used for some of these patients, but it's not just for COVID. Rachel says the military's Tripler Hospital does not have an ECMO machine, so patients could be transferred to a civilian hospital or be sent to another Department of Defense facility for treatment. We will continue our conversation with Hilton Rathel of the Healthcare Association right after this break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634. Book clubs with engaging discussions, trivia nights with lively but friendly competition, cocktail tutorials taught by Hawaii's leading bartenders. What do all of these have in common? They're examples of events put on by Generation Listen, a group of younger listeners who love HPR and connecting with other public radio nerds. These virtual events are free or inexpensive, are always a good time, and you're invited no matter what island you're on. Follow us on social at HPR Gen Listen. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply. With ways for the community to help conserve water during the hot summer months when rainfall is low but demand is high. Seven ways to conserve water at boardofwatersupply.com. Earlier this morning, we talked to Hilton Rathel, CEO of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. He represents a number of hospitals and healthcare facilities across the state. We pick up our conversation with him. We've been hearing that various hospitals at certain times, I think last week or so in the last two weeks, have maxed out on the ICU beds. Uh, what's the snapshot today? Do you know? Well, uh, 
we do have a little capacity statewide in our ICU beds, but between COVID patients and all of the other patients that we would normally see, our ICUs are um, pretty well stretched. Now, again, we do have some capacity. We are hoping that maybe we are at the peak of the surge, but we don't know definitively if yet. It'll still take, um, you know, it'll still take maybe the end of this week or another few days before we know if we if we're going to plateau and then go down or if we're plateauing and are going to go up again. We have heard also about uh, the potential use of uh, field uh, sites. You know, and I don't know if those would be located, let's say, in the parking structure of, you know, hospitals. You know, we are seeing the numbers very high on the west side. Uh, anything you can share with us on that point? Well, we do have some expansion capability outside of our hospitals and we have some modules that are called ACMs or acute care modules and we can house approximately 100 patients in these acute care modules across the state if necessary. Now, some of these ACMs or acute care modules have already been deployed. For example, there is one at Straub uh, Medical Center here in Honolulu. There is one in Kona and they are not being used for inpatient care at this point in time. They're being used for triage care. So because there are so many COVID-positive patients coming into the hospitals, we, you, in a hospital you want to separate someone who's COVID-positive or potentially positive from the rest of the population that's in the emergency room so that you, know, they don't, you don't get cross-contamination. So the ACMs, or having these tent systems, um, allow us to, if, if anyone is COVID or COVID positive, they can be separated. Now, you can do that in an emergency room, but the, having the ACMs gives you more space where you can just separate these individuals out. So we are already using some of these acute care modules at some of the hospitals. Queens has its own tent system that it's using. Maui has its own tent system that it's using. So they are using tent systems for triage as well. But if necessary, we can deploy these ACMs across the state um, for inpatient care. Now, they do require staffing. So if you're going to use them for inpatient care, you've got to, require, you've got to have staff. Now, fortunately, we have been able to obtain some material dollars from FEMA to bring in personnel into the state. And we are right now in the middle of bringing in over 500 clinical personnel into the state to support our hospitals so that we can maximize the capacity of our own hospitals. And these staff, which are funded by FEMA, are critical in terms of helping us deal with this current surge. And what's the likelihood of these being used in places in the rural areas, I don't know, like maybe Kahuku Hospital or Wahewa or somewhere on the neighbor islands? You mean the ACMs? Yes. Um, well, they can be deployed anywhere, but an ACM... Um, you know, they would go to, they could be used, set up in a parking lot, in a, um, you know, on lawns. Um, they, there's a lot of services that go to taking care of patients, as, as people know, especially if they've been in the hospital. You know, you need dietary, you need pharmacy, you need radiology, you need housekeeping. There's all sorts of support services or what we call wraparound services that are needed to take care of patients. It's not just doctors and nurses. They're critical, but the rest of the team is critical as well. So it, it, it's a lot easier to uh, house these ACMs 
adjacent to an existing facility, depending on where the need is. So they can be moved. They, you know, they're in containers, and we can ship them around on the back of a truck, you know, within Oahu, or we can uh, fly them to the neighbor islands if necessary. We've already got some deployed on the neighbor islands. So they can be set up wherever there is a need for either additional triage capacity or additional inpatient capacity um, as, as the need arises. And if there is a need uh, for support, let's say, from the National Guard, uh, you know, what's the threshold for an ask like that? Well, we are in very regular contact with all of these state and federal agencies, including HIEMA and these federal agencies that I mentioned earlier. Um, there is some National Guard capability, but at this point in time, we are relying on civilian resources. Now, we are using FEMA money, which is federal funding, to support the civilian resources. But right now, we, are, we still have access to additional civilian resources or travelers from the mainland if we need them. So, you know, we can deploy the National Guard if necessary. But at this point in time, we have not maxed out the uh, civilian resources that are available. And that's what we're looking to in the short term, uh, well, at least in the immediate future, is civilian resources, and we can bring in additional civilian resources if necessary. All right. Anything else that you think would be important to underscore? Well, at this point in time, we still have capacity in our hospitals. Now, Is the system is really being stretched. And the question is, are the numbers going to continue to go up? And we don't know if the numbers are continue, the hospitalizations are going to continue to go up. The Delta variant is resulting in almost twice as many hospitalizations as the Alpha variant or the original uh, one of the earlier variants. So it's creating havoc in our community. The vaccination rates are increasing, but we still have between 150 and 200,000 individuals who are eligible for the vaccine here in Hawaii have still not gotten it. And over 90% of our hospital, or approximately 90% of our current hospitalizations for COVID are unvaccinated individuals. So the people who are not vaccinated for whatever their reason, they're playing the odds. Mm-hmm. And, and some people are losing, you know, whenever you work the odds, some play the odds, some win, some lose. We have people, unfortunately, on a daily basis who are, who are losing and ending up in hospital, and a small proportion of those are dying. So, you know, vaccination is not going to help in the short term because it takes, you know, r- roughly six to seven weeks to get full immunity if you're on a two-shot regimen. So what we need people to do is to continue to social distance, wear their masks, wash their hands, and get vaccinated so that that is the only way that we're going to get out of this pandemic in the long haul. It is encouraging to see Oahu's numbers high, you know, because we have most of the population here. So that that is encouraging. We have done yeah. very, very well mm-hmm. as a state, but the system is being stretched right now. And we are working to ensure that we do have the resources necessary to take care of anyone who does show up at our hospitals. We have been talking with the CEO of the Healthcare Association, Hilton Rachel, about uh, how our healthcare facilities are straining under the weight of the skyrocketing case count. We do not know if our cases have peaked or if the worst is yet to come.
Honolulu Civil Beat's reality check today looks at the practice of dealing with homeless encampments, passionate disruptions, homeless sweeps, or necessary cleanups. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair is here with us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So the story today, that's by Cassie Ordonio. Yeah, she's she's terrific. She's been helping cover city issues. And you know what she did here? You know, she checked back with what Rick Blangiardi said when he was running for mayor last year. And he said, you know, we've got to end this compassionate disruption, right? That's the phrase that Kirk Caldwell used to describe his homeless sweeps. Blangiardi, as a candidate, said, look, this is not working. All you're really doing is moving the homeless from one place to another and then to another uh, and said he was going to change that when he got into office because it didn't, in his view, address the root cause of homelessness, which is you know really trying to help people get permanent shelter. But in fact, as Cassie reports, sweeps have continued, but maybe under a different name. This is really now all about a sanitation activities, cleaning sidewalks, cleaning streets, cleaning parks. But guess what? That's where the homeless are. And and the city does acknowledge that, in fact, these sanitation activities uh, do, in fact, impact some homeless communities and, and send them fleeing to the next location. Well, you know, I just know uh, just around the corner we've had a situation with encampments uh, on one of the side streets. And there was, a, I think, a couple of game rooms. There was a murder there. There were a oh, couple yeah. of drive-by shootings, you know. And I have seen those crews come to break up the camps as well. Uh, and then uh, the other day I just saw a police car actually just like sitting there on the street, I guess maybe just to make sure that, you know, groups aren't congregating there anymore. And remember, this, this is part of uh, the law, the statute for the city and county of, of Honolulu, that you cannot be uh, loitering and, and storing property on sidewalks and, and other activities. At least 18 distinct neighborhoods on Oahu, particularly in, concentrated in Honolulu, don't allow this stored property or sidewalk nuisance, as it was described, right? So they do have a, a job. And when I say they, I mean the Honolulu Police Department, as well as the city cleanup agencies. And Anton Krucke, who actually runs the city's housing and homeless office, says what's different this time is, you know, they're not specifically targeting homeless people. This really is about removing debris, trash, bulky items. Uh, And by the way, they're also beefing up outreach services, sending folks in to help people get into a shelter, get the kind of help that they need. But, you know, to the outside observer, just as you were discussing, it looks very much like what we've always done. Come in, move everybody out, and and then they got to go somewhere else, and then they pop up in another neighborhood near you. Well, the city does post its enforcement schedule, right? It does, but the CDC uh, says, you know, you should be doing this. You should not be clearing homeless camps during COVID. That's just not the right thing to do. The people that Cassie spoke with said a lot of homeless people are not eager to go into a homeless shelter. Those shelters are very crowded. With COVID cases being what they are, there's a tremendous fear uh, that they're going to get sick. But then there's another aspect of this that the ACLU likes to point out. Hey, this is unconstitutional. This is illegal. You really cannot go and do this. It's actually inhumane. And by the way, it also costs a lot of money to do these homeless sweeps. Why not use that money instead to beef up outreach services to help these folks? Well, you know, they do have to clean up because, you know, some of these areas are just uh, not just an eyesore, but a a health hazard. 
They are. And it, it is important to, to point out that the city does give 30 minutes warning so people can go through and grab their belongings. And then they do have 45 days to go and claim that that material. They can get it back from the city. But this is another problem that the ACLU points out. For a lot of these folks, they're carrying their personal identification, their social security numbers, their birth certificate, basic IDs. And it's very challenging to lose those those important documents and then not have them when you need them, like getting a job and so forth. And so that's something the ACLU is stressing as well, that this is, if anything, it's making the problem of homelessness worse, despite the good intentions on the part of the city to say it's trying to help people more, as well as enforce the law. Right. And they are being cited. And, uh, you know, so they are just kind of caught up in this whole uh, legal... Endless cycle, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is unfortunate. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. Thank you, Catherine. That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Cassie's homeless story at civilbeat.org. This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your trivia question, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe. For today's quiz, we're going on a grocery run. Ever doubled back to the juice aisle to pick up a carton of Pog or two? Well, we've probably all done it. Pog has been sold commercially since at least the 1970s. Haleakala Dairy was the first to put this drink on the shelves. In 1998, Metagold bought out the Maui Dairy, inheriting Pog in the process. The beloved passion orange and guava juice mix is a staple for any household in Hawaii. In fact, it's so commonplace that you may never have even thought to question the orange furry gnome throwing you a shaka from behind the guava on a carton of Metagold's Pog. This tiny gnome has a name. And it's the official mascot of the Pog drink. Over the years, it's appeared on race cars, surfboards, and, of course, the promotional milk uh, caps, also known as Pogs, that Haleakala Dairy released to promote juice sales. For today's quiz, we want to know the name of Pog's mascot. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com.
The rights to the commercial use of surface water has been the source of contention across Hawaii since the days of sugar clean plantations. The battle has uh, been fought most notably in West Maui. Since the demise of the sugar industry in our state, those landowners have continued to file for permits to retain the ability to divert water from West Maui streams. In response, several local groups have filed lawsuits in an effort to get the state to restore that water to the streams and its ecosystems. A new book published this summer titled Water and Power in West Maui details the history of the battle over water rights on the Valley Isle. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the authors, Bianca Isaki and Jonathan Schur. Where does your passion for the issue come from and why was it important for you to write the book? I guess I find my passion more around like social justice. I uh, I wrote my dissertation about like settler colonialism in Hawaii, the role of Asian settlers. And from all of this academic work, I came into a lot of legal work where I do a lot of litigation, public interest litigation for communities. And writing the book was actually, it was both because, well, I was familiar with the issues because I've been working with these communities, which was good and bad because on one hand, it's like, I know the issues. On the other hand, it's like, I you know, because of you know, legal requirements, you don't want to divulge too much. The book was actually, it was commissioned by um, North Beach West Maui Community Fund. And so they, and I don't know if Jonathan knows this, Jonathan gave a talk at a a Hawaiian environmental issues conference that we put together in Lahaina that was with Kamokukapu Naakane O Maui Cultural Center. Jonathan gave a very impressive talk and a lot of people from North Beach Board were there and they were like, wow, he knows so much about water, about, he, he knows about how they drop seedlings down in West Maui Mountains. Like, we got to get this guy to write a book. And then Jonathan, for some reason, it was like, well, Bianca helps me with other things. <laughs> so I was writing on the coattails there. I didn't know that story. My passion for the issue of water management in Hawaii ultimately comes to wanting to be hopeful in a life that you know, despite the tremendous blessings of living in Hawaii, the, the good fortune that we didn't choose to be born here, those of us who were born here, those who have gotten to move here, there's a lot that's very tough in Hawaii right now, from impending climate crises to the struggle over the basic needs of life, including housing, shelter, food. What I have seen in communities across Hawaii, including in West Maui, is this incredibly sophisticated ability at the grassroots level for people to come together to have really hard conversations across across difference, meaning like, I mean, Terraform is sitting down with like incredibly wealthy second homeowners and actually coming to some difficult but shared understandings of what it means to be in this community and what each side might need to do to be able to figure out a better future for that area first, and then for the people who live there. So despite the headlines that note accurately that some water struggles take decades to resolve in Hawaii, in water management, we have managed to create outcomes that have left Hawaii and our communities better off. And that's ultimately the thing that drives my passion about this work, my desire to talk story with communities about it, and my, my honor to get to work in communities in West Maui and across Hawaii on these issues. I really connected with the historical aspect of the book. And you start the book out by laying a foundation through the details of a legal case in 1895, Horner v. Kumuli'ili'i, 
Some of the struggles that we see in West Maui today in 2021 do indeed tie all the way back to issues that were litigated during Horner versus Kumuli, the case in the 1890s, where the owners of Pioneer Mill sued Native Hawaiians. And in a way that echoes today's struggles of sometimes we have foreigners complain that Hawaiians aren't showing enough aloha to outsiders. The plantation owners sued Native Hawaiian kala growers for having violated traditional and customary water management techniques. But it really came down to what the plantation was insisting the traditional and customary technique was versus what the ongoing landowners and kala farmers in that area continued to know was the way in which water was historically managed. So we start the book with a discussion of Horner Kumu versus Kumuli'ili for a few reasons. One is because it's an incredibly fascinating and un, often untold story of post-overthrow Native Hawaiian resistance to outside control. It's a good example of they won the case, but in many ways lost the battle. While Horner lost the case, we know from having looked at the development of Pioneer Mill in the 20s, 30s, all the way up through the 70s, that they eventually did control vast areas of West Maui. And many of those historic holdings ended up in their hands, or at least partially so. But also today in the area, including in areas historically farmed near Pioneer Mill, including Kaua'ula Valley and other areas, there continues to be Native Hawaiians farming taro, reasserting land ownership rights and water rights, some of whom turn to that case in particular, not just as legal foundation, but also inspiration for their continued existence and, and thriving. In the book, you spend a couple of chapters examining the state's role in protecting our surface water. Do you feel like they've done their job or do they need to do more? The state has done in the last few years a much better job at trying to manage surf water, surface water effectively in West Maui and other areas of the state than it has for the previous three decades. So they deserve some kudos. They, on their own, rather than having communities having to come to them, have suggested returning water to streams from historic diversions um, for calculating how much water is needed at a minimum for there to be Maokadamakai flow of surface water for Oopu and Opai and Hihibai, as well as sufficient water for other what are called in-stream uses of water, whether it's kalo growing or recreational uses or other uses of water. So recently the state has done far better, the State Commission on Water Resources Management, far better than had been the case for decades previously. With that said, everybody always has room for improvement and there are no exception. One of the things that this community has talked about and other communities have talked about and we mentioned in the book is that we would hope that the standards that the state sets for how our resources should look should move beyond a mindset of looking at the minimum amounts needed to what kind of restoration of resources we could have so that our ecosystems and our communities are thriving, are abundant. For those of us in our generation, the, the three of us in this conversation, we honestly have no idea of how abundant Hawaii used to be. You know, one tiny indication, and this was research Kepa Mali did in West Maui and across Hawaii by looking at Mahele awards and Mahele claims, people who are claiming their kuleana rights during the Mahele 
the number one across the Hawaiian Islands, the number one resource that was often claimed in Mahele Awards, our people said we use in our community was harvesting o'opu, these freshwater fish as like a major protein source all across Hawaii. And now, like I was, I was in my 50s before I tasted my first o'opu. Many of us don't even know what it is. Yeah, I've never had it before. And I only know it from the reference in that Olamana song. Um, it's actually, it's like super tasty. <laughs> Very oily. I think that where the state falls down in terms of trying to manage water resources, and you know, I work with a lot of state agencies, as Jonathan said, the water commission is by far much better than many of the county agencies and other people. But I think, well, this isn't just with the, uh, with the state, but it's like, yeah, well, a lot of government approaches to to protecting Hawaiian nutritional customary rights. It's like they are property interests and that's legally how you get it in there. But if you look at it from a cultural perspective and all the people we talk to do, the, the problem isn't that they are consumers that you know need to you know need to take certain things like they take the water, they take the um, you know uh, they, they take whatever to to do their practices. The, the, issue is actually that the tradition is protection. The tradition is management. The tradition is also governance. And so that, um, so the premise that, um, that the state is protecting these traditions, it butts up against that a lot, especially when it comes to water, because, and, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard like Kanavai, like water law or like law is like identified with like the ways water is managed. And because of that inherent contradiction, it, it doesn't mean that people don't work over it because, you know, I've definitely worked with communities who are like, okay, this is how the public process work. We're going to do this and we'll get people out. This is the arguments that, you know, um, this is how it works for us to make these arguments to protect it. And, you know, they, but in all of this, they always see themselves as like, as enacting a tradition of protection or enacting a tradition that makes them who they are. I, and I think that gets missed sometimes. Jonathan, going back to groundwater, can you talk a little bit more about the difference between surface water and groundwater? So ground and surface water are managed differently in Hawaii, even though they are often hydrologically connected, you know, stream water sometimes sinks into the ground, springs come up out of the ground, but the state manages surface water and groundwater as if they were separated. Surface water is managed by setting in-stream flow standards, how much water should remain in the stream before water can be taken out for economic uses. Groundwater, this, what the state does, and this is a major concern, the state sets so-called sustainable yields, which they say in a given area, a given aquifer system, how much groundwater can be withdrawn from the ground, from wells, um, now and in the future. And the state generally says, we're not going to closely manage a system until that pumping number reaches 90% or more of what we set of the sustainable yield. The book goes into some great detail on how this system is so overly simplified as to be dangerous to our future, not just in West Maui, but across Hawaii. I know a settlement was recently reached in the 20-year battle over water rights at Navai Eha on Maui. What are your hopes for the future of water rights on Maui? What I hope for water rights is that there doesn't that it doesn't have to be a struggle, that it can be something that's managed and not managed in a way under the framework that the state does currently, where it's based on like 
a not a kind of shady calculus of relying on the past to predict how much is available in the future. So my, my hope is that the rights that exist make sense and are enforced in a way that where the decision makers aren't interpreting it as like we have a water bank and we're going to we're going to dole out every dollar when like, you know, the bank is kind of fictitious, not forward looking. And, and if, if you do spend all your, your last penny out of that bank is actually, it is the land that's going to suffer. What is my hope for West Maui's water future? Even though it's, it's small and partial and still contested, I am very pleased that some resolution has been found in, in Nabaiha, part of West Maui. So I guess I I turn to two quotes, two of my favorite water and land battle quotes that I've learned over the years. Um, One from Windward Oahu, Uncle Calho, whoever controls the water controls the future. And one from Haunani Apoliona when she was chair of OHA, let the past not be a trap, but let it be a liberation. My hope for West Maui is that the state and the county and those who have greater resources will work with, encourage, and have meaningful discussions and dialogues with communities across Hawaii to build up our collective capacity to manage what could be a truly abundant and beautiful future for water in West Maui and across Hawaii, rather than one of the last century of mistrust, struggle, and decline of our resources. That was Jonathan Shore and Bianca Isaki, authors of the new book, Water and Power in West Maui. It was our nod to August being Water Quality Month. The authors were talking to our Russell Subiono. For more information on the book, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips shares news of the fastest asteroid ever detected in the solar system. He's joined by HPR's Dave Lawrence with your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies as usual. Thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal. We're welcoming him back right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the eastern sky after sunset. Both planets will be visible till around 11 p.m., and they are both very bright and should be easy to spot. The moon this week is approaching the new moon phase, and so skies will be nice and dark. Perfect for stargazing. Don't think that'll help us with this fastest asteroid you're going to be telling us about? (laughs) Yeah. Astronomers using the Victor Blanco 4-meter telescope in Chile have discovered what is possibly the fastest asteroid ever detected in the solar system. This asteroid has been dubbed 2021 PH27, and it whips around the sun in around four months, which is just a little bit longer than the orbit of Mercury, which is around 88 days. The asteroid itself is quite small, less than a mile in diameter, and its close proximity to the sun also means this asteroid is hot, with the surface temperature estimated to be around 900 degrees Fahrenheit. And exactly how they find it, Chris? Well, astronomers were actually conducting studies of galaxies and other 
other deep sky objects. But in their spare time, they did a spot of asteroid hunting. And it so happens that this asteroid was so interesting that they pushed back their other scheduled observations to keep an eye on it. And explain how its proximity to the sun, Chris, impacted the discovery. Well, the fact it was so close to the sun may have actually prevented us from seeing it. The sun's glare would have obscured this small object, and it just so happens that it was spotted as it was coming out of that glare and illuminated by the sun. And explain what they think is the, uh, the origins for it. Well, most asteroids are found farther out from the sun, mainly in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It's possible that this little fellow was knocked out of its orbit out there, and that sent it careening towards the sun, where its orbit stabilized. And is there any chance this thing could hit a planet? Yes. In fact, the asteroid's current orbit puts it on a potential collision course with either Mercury or Venus sometime in the future. You can guarantee that we will be watching this very closely, as this will be an event that is too good to miss. And we know you'll have the update right here on Stargazer. Christopher Phillips, thank you. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Kohala High School STEM and Science Facility on Hawaii Island, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you the name of Pog's mascot. Yep. Passion Orange Guava Juice had, it own, had its own mascot. And you can see it peeking out from behind the guava on a carton of Metagold's Pog. This round creature covered in bright orange fur is called the Poglodite. It's the brainchild of Charlie Nalepa of Kihei, the longtime marketing manager at Haleakala Dairy, which was later acquired by Metagold Dairies. Nalepa reportedly worked with a designer from Walt Disney to come up with the distinctive look for the juice mascot, and it has appeared on everything from speedboats to race cars. The Poglodite was only one of Nalepa's many marketing endeavors for the beloved juice. Another was the hugely successful release of decorative milk bottle caps, also known as Pogs. Haleakala Dairy stopped selling milk in bottles before they started selling Pog juice, but there was still demand for the paper milk caps as they were used for a popular children's game. Nalepa put the Poglodite on these milk caps, and they became a collector's item during the Pog craze of the 80s. There are probably a few still floating around. If you have one, we want to know. No winners today, but that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. More than a decade, that's how long Sarah Chase worked in Afghanistan. I do think this massive transformation that we've been telling ourselves about is just a little bit overblown. With the Taliban back in power, we'll talk with Chase about how Afghanistan really changed and how it changed her. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. 
you know, we air stories on occasion that push the buttons or pull on the heartstrings of our listeners. Our talkback line is how they share those thoughts and feelings with us. Last week, we talked to Dr. Lauren Pang with the State Health District Office on Maui and got these voicemails. Hi, my name is Nikos Leverens. I live in Aliomanu. I want to just relay that Dr. Lauren Pang's private associations do have a profound impact on public health, and that given what we've seen in the Star Advertiser this morning, he should resign immediately and apologize for the damage that he's wrought to the Maui community and to our state. Mahalo. Aloha, this is Kay from Kailua. I just wanted to say that I was very disappointed in the interview with Dr. Warren Pang from the Department of Health. You know, I understand allowing a guest to speak for themselves, but essentially what I heard was the conversation allowing this individual to gloss over what the group is doing, and that is providing disinformation to the community and allowing um, doctors to provide harmful treatments to the community. And so what I would urge the conversation to do next time is to really push hard. What is his stance on on things like ivermectin and hydrochloroquine, what is, what is his stance on disinformation? Because I felt like basically he got a free pass, and that was, to me, unacceptable during a global pandemic, and it's very dangerous. Mahalo. Thank you, Nico Sunkei. We appreciate your perspective. And here's a voicemail from a listener on vaccines. Hi, my name is Diane Colburn. I'm calling from Waikele. I am an HPR supporter and really appreciate what you do. Um, I am awaiting my second vaccination, just to let you know that I am not anti-vax. However, I would like to have us be more accurate in our depiction of the possibility of eradication, particularly trying to make it analogous to polio and the smallpox vaccine. Correct me if I am wrong. But my understanding all along has been that coronaviruses, flu, influenza, in all of its various strains, and the common cold, we've tried to eradicate all of those things. And it appears that the best we can do is to keep up with vaccines on the various variants. So it seems to me not the right target to be talking about eradication, but to really be ramping up everyone's personal awareness, responsibility for themselves and their community, those of the people they like and the people that they don't. Um, And uh, rather than talking about the eradication of it and comparing it to smallpox and polio, Those are just my thoughts. Thanks for listening. And thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our talkback line at 792-8217. And that's a wrap for this Monday. Tomorrow, we talk about the global disruption of trade. And you live on Oahu's west side. What do you think about the soaring COVID cases in your neighborhood? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.